0: there was no straight line. (laughs) It was was a squiggly line. It was
1: at one point the second best-selling beer in America, and it was a brown ale. X-Ray. It's the Beervana Show, broadcast in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. You are in your home. I am in my home. We are safely distant.
0: Yes, although... You know, this, Uh this well, no, we we are safely distanced, but I'm just, I'm just starting to think maybe we won't have to be all that much longer. You know, this vaccine thing is starting to get, pick up some steam.
1: It is picking up steam. Apparently volumes are increasing, although we'll admit to recording this uh, right around when we're still sort of cleaning up from the big weather event that hit all of the United States. And apparently that's causing a little bit of uh, issues with vaccine distribution. And
0: you're, you're, you're thinking through your supply chain, supply chain management. Uh, yeah, I, we're yeah.
1: old enough that we might get it before the fall. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm hoping we get it along before the fall. We should, uh,
1: we'll see yeah. about that.
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly hopeful that, that, uh, you know, by the summer we're going to be making huge progress and then we'll have the whole summer where we can, we would normally be able to eat outside and do stuff outside anyway. So that's going to be fine. And then by the time the fall kicks in, I think we're, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful.
1: I like your optimism since this is a beer podcast. I'll say that that's one of the things I'm sure I'm not alone in saying. I know I'm not alone with you that, uh, uh, going to a pub, hanging out, having beers with friends is perhaps the thing I miss the most in this whole crazy world.
0: Yeah. 100%. And I think that's why I keep obsessing about it on this beer podcast is because it is the thing that's preventing me from having beer with my friends.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, we'll 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 get a chance today to have a little bit of beer. Uh, today's show is going to be a bit of a free form, so uh, uh, buyer beware, caveat emptor. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, last week we had on Josh Noll, who is the author of Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out, and in that book he recounts sort of the history of. Uh, the first wave of craft beer, and then both kind of the second wave of craft beer, and how big uh, the big brewers Anheuser Busch, Miller Coors, Miller and Coors at the time, I suppose, uh, started to to deal with it. In reading that book in preparation for the interview, and um, just for fun, it brought back a lot of memories about how the first wave of craft beer happened, and we happen to be of a certain age where it happened right as we were coming of age and uh, becoming beer drinkers ourselves at that very moment when craft beer was sort of taking off for the first time really And so uh, it brought back a lot of memories and we thought that it might be fun for us and perhaps less, less importantly, but perhaps for you uh, to listen to (laughs) two old guys reminisce about craft beer uh, and our experience with it. So today's, uh, today's podcast is going to be basically two old guys talking about beer. (laughs) And, and, and who doesn't want that, right? I can't imagine. Who Who doesn't want that? So, so you get what you pay for. Uh, (laughs) no, uh, but I I love
0: how you're, uh, under promising so we can possibly over deliver. Oh yeah. If you make everybody, uh, tune out before they get to us, then the the people who stick around will be like, well, that wasn't terrible
1: unless it is. And we don't know, we don't know. That's the fun. Yeah. Uh, well, and that's also the fun of podcasts. You can just, uh, hit skip if you, if, (laughs) if it's not going well for you, but it is true that, uh, we're talking about, um, sort of the mid eighties when, uh, we were finishing high school, going to college and a lot of these new craft breweries were starting up. Some of the laws were changing. Uh, uh, brew pubs were starting to emerge. And so uh, we actually and we were in uh, Portland, Oregon at the time, so we have a lot of firsthand knowledge of uh, how this went. And we've had a lot of the main characters on our podcast from those eras. So here's a way we can sort of interject ourselves into the narrative.
0: <laughs> right. right. And, and And I actually think that there is a little bit of value in in pointing out how things have evolved because, We begin to tell ourselves stories, uh, and then we repeat the stories, and it becomes a closed loop. And sometimes those stories are, are a little bit too rigid and don't breathe enough to let people see that there was more more and less going on, I mean, you know. Maybe, maybe, maybe less good beer early on. <laughs> anyway, we'll we'll, we'll unpack.
1: All yeah, that. and in, and it's not entirely incidental too, because at that time or soon thereafter, you were hired on as the Willamette Week beer writer. So, uh, you know, there's um this is some real history, not just sort of weird anecdote. Yeah. old farts.
0: That's, that's right. I started writing at the dawn of what I would call the second era, and we'll talk about those eras. Um, but yeah, it should be
1: fun. All right. Well, we'll do that soon. But first, we need to tell you about the news.
0: Recent reports from multiple sources are projecting the hard seltzer category, just to kind of tell. Tell us where we are before we talk about where we were, uh, to continue to grow dramatically, becoming uh, up to 20% of the beer market by 2025. That still seems like an aggressive estimate, but uh, even half that would be astonishing. Per our guest last week, uh, after 20 years, the craft segment had only 3% share of the beer market, and it has never reached 20%.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of astonishing this uh this freight train of seltzer doesn't seem to be stopping in almost daily i think i notice a new brand coming out from one of the big companies
0: yeah it feels way land rushy and i think if you're not an anheuser-busch level player it's going to be hard to make any inroads into this extremely crowded marketplace now
1: yeah so this is a really good point uh which is the thing with beer is that you can have a bunch of these sort of artisanal craft brewers who uh, can talk up their product and how they're doing things. And it's a very personal thing. I mean, seltzer, it's going to be hard to be personal at all. And there's huge economies of scale. And uh, I think this is something, uh, if you want to be sort of um, more dramatic about it, it's something that's going to be a real challenge for craft beer. I'm not sure, however, how much Seltzer is going to cut into craft beer. I don't know. I think it's going to have a much bigger dent on macro beer. So
0: that's that's my feeling too. And I, you know, I, I, th- this this prediction of twenty percent by by you know in four years really is one of those take it with a grain of salt predictions because it's based on current trends and current trends never last no matter what yeah. they are. So you know y- you you just have to wait and see. And uh, there could be a moment when somebody looks down at their Mango ish flavored water, uh, and says, "You know, this is actually not that interesting. What the hell have I been doing?"
1: Kind of like, <laughs> I've had five of these now, and I am sick. Yeah,
0: maybe they won't, but you know, I am. I am just saying that's not not an inconceivable possibility.
1: So, the one thing I want to see is whether some enterprising, sort of more artisanal uh, take on. Uh, Seltzer comes about where you have kind of, um, what's the name of that uh, soda? Oh, Izzy sodas, where they have a little bit of juice in them. Um, So it's soda water with a little bit of juice. It's a little sort of higher end, slightly more natural, tastes better. Uh, version of Seltzer, I guess. Yeah, I bet that
0: will happen, and I bet we'll also see some price pressures yep. because these things are priced at premium levels.
1: That's what's astonishing. Like at some point, this there's going to have to something's got to give because uh, there's no way it costs anywhere near uh, what they're uh, charging in the margins. Yeah, yeah. But that, I've been dumbfounded how much they're getting for this stuff right now. I have too. Uh, two local news items that may inform our discussion today. In sad news, the first of the new generation craft beer bars, Bailey's Tap Room, announced its permanent closure. Founded in 2007 and located downtown, it was another victim of COVID. That's a big drag. Uh, uh, we were both really excited about Bailey's Tap Room when it opened. It was kind of a new concept with basically a beer bar devoted to, to craft beer.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, with lots of rotating taps, uh, very knowledgeable staff, and great location. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, fact, in fact, you and I admired it quite a bit. We were talking about other uh, versions of this that could be started in all over the city. And,
0: and, and in fact, that's what ended up happening. And and I think one yeah. of the interesting things about Bailey's, which uh, I'm sure happened in other cities as well, but it was a little bit of a revelation here was that Bailey's laser focused on local beer yeah, and often on kind of not the most prominent local beer, like little guys, new guys, guys that had you know, if you were to you didn't bring, they weren't buying bee Porter, they were buying, uh, Abyss, you know, mm. they were, they were going for unusual stuff and, and looking for that crowd that was really interested in pushing the, pushing out to the edges of craft beer. Yeah. And, and there was no reason to think that that was a good move. Like that's, you know, the market had spoken and it wanted bee Porter in 2007, <laughs> you know, that uh, opening a pub that sold popular beers is kind of the more obvious move. Yeah. But, and the, uh, the
1: other interesting thing about the taproom was that, um, it was located downtown and it was you know, not like a slick place, but it, it, it also attracted a clientele that you don't normally, sort of the white collar business, you know, business suit crowd as well. Um, mm-hmm. So it wasn't just the flannel drinking craft beer, you know, super geek, uh, but it really introduced a lot of really high quality and different craft beer to, uh, to, a, um, uh, to a more sort of white collar business audience.
0: Yeah, I did, and I, I wrote a blog post where I contacted some of the breweries that were founded around that same time, uh, which were at the time little, little uh, you know unknowns, uh, and they are now among the most important breweries that we have in Oregon. Um, and, you know, and when they were fighting for a place, Bailey's Tap Room downtown Portland was a real leg up. Um, yeah. So I think that there's a there's an ecosystem here that is maybe not as appreciated between. Uh, really, uh, one really good bar can do a whole lot for a brewery, and Bailey's was that really good bar. Yeah. All
1: right. In more positive news, Pelican Brewery this year joins the Quarter Century Club. Woohoo! Congrats. Yeah. Founded in Civic City in 1996, Pelican remained a brew pub for 17 years before building a packaging brewery in 2013 and expanding to Cannon Beach and soon uh, Cillette's Bay. And I feel like also, no? Uh, okay. Yeah. Silette's Bay. All right. Okay. That's it. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> the company managed to grow nearly 11% in 2020 and made uh, 42,000 barrels. Which is kind of amazing. They grew 11% in
0: 2020.
1: Yeah. And 42,000 barrels. So uh, just to sort of give give the geographical context. So Pelican, the original brew pub is in an amazing spot on, literally on the beach in Pacific City. But Pacific City is not the easiest place to get to in the Oregon coast. So it kinda of had its own little niche, sort of a coastal place, and then it's kind of expanded its coastal presence. So so uh Kenna Beach is another coastal town, a little bit more accessible to the Portland audience. Uh Celets Bay around Lincoln City, so that's it's becoming kind of the brewery of the Oregon Coast, or north nor, northern Oregon Coast at least. Uh and so to, to have that kind of growth and to and to have that big impact is a real kudos to them and particularly to the, the brewers who continue to put out exceptional beer.
0: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing great work there. And it's a, it's a great success story for a legacy brewery showing that you can continue to survive and thrive, uh, in, in middle age, which I guess 25 years for breweries middle age.
1: Yeah. If I was doing like, you know, the, whatever the business school, like, you know, case study about it, I'd say it was a, it was a, it's a, it's a story of, you know, sort of focused and, uh, conscious growth, right? Like, they didn't try to go crazy. They did open a packaging thing, but they kind of knew their identity. They didn't try to grow too fast. They made sure they were kept, they kept their eye on the quality of the beer, and um, and they had this identity of a, of a of sort of the the brewery of the Oregon Coast that's really held up. So
0: yeah, indeed, and and they won a million awards and are, are really known for good beer, which doesn't hurt.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. As a final note, in case you missed it, uh, after the military, military coup in Myanmar. Things got too hot for Kirin. The Japanese company was partnering with a conglomerate linked to the country's military. That company, mm-hmm. Myanmar Economic Holdings, it's overseen by Commander-in-Chief Senior General Min Aung Lang. Sorry, I'm not so good at pronouncing uh, Burmese names. Um, Kirin then recently announced that they were pulling out of the arrangement following the coup. So uh, I I think they get... A, a tiny bit of credit here, but maybe not an enormous amount of credit.
1: I was going to say something cynical about the sort of, you know, the moral courage they're showing. Right,
0: there. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but um, but yeah, it it, uh, it it's at least they're they're doing the least they can do, which I guess we can thank him for. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So were they, were they, uh, uh, was that to support the Kirin brand in Myanmar? Do you know?
0: No, were they? they were, they were there to, uh, I think there are two brands owned by this company that are like oh, okay. the big, the big Burmese brands.
1: Uh, yeah. You know, Japanese things are a little, sometimes a little more complicated in other parts of Asia. That's right. Here. Yeah. I think that's what they're yeah. doing. All right. Well, uh, let's turn to the main topic, Jeff. Indeed. I'm going to crack a beer because it's Friday afternoon. It is Friday afternoon as we record this. All right. So so back to the original topic, which is uh, we're going to give you some of our personal narrative, our oral history of craft beer in America. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so I, I'm going to start and say that uh, when I was uh, coming of age and before people start casting aspersions at how early I started drinking beer, uh, I'll remind you that I was in Wisconsin at this time, and Wisconsin had a drinking age of 18 years old. And then later, as I got close to 18, it turned into 19 years old. But it's also Wisconsin w- in which beer is sort of the the uh, the state drink. Um, so uh, I was a typical teenager drinking cheap beer. And we were in Wisconsin, so that was Miller. And when we were feeling hoity-toity, uh, we might try to uh, convince a a, a convenience store to sell us a six-pack of Heineken. and In fact, we had this theory that if we went for the Heineken six-pack that we had more success actually having them sell it to us because no no underage drinker would ever want to buy Heineken, right?
0: I thought you were going to say you bought a Lainey's. Like, ooh, stepping up.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. In fact, Lainey Kugel is interesting and we can talk about that as we go along. Uh, I drank more Line and Kugel later when we, went, when we went back to Wisconsin but as a kid, there was a lot of Miller And um, as I say, Heineken. But the reason for the story is that it wasn't until I came to Portland, Oregon, and was now a freshman in college and trying to seem all cool, sophisticated, that I really started getting into craft beer. And the craft beer at the time was pretty minimal. But the one beer that I remember, the first, I would say, probably true craft beer that I ever remember having was a uh, Anchor Steam. Ah, guess what? I just cracked and poured into my glass. No, really? Absolutely. <laughs> all right. And I remember not liking it at first, of course, because it was all kinds of flavors that I had never associated with beer before, and it was sort of big and thick, thick and and. Uh, uh, but I'm sure because at the time you're all you know posing for your friends, I'm sure I made a big deal about how much I liked it. But the honest truth is that at first I didn't. Particularly care for it at all, <laughs> and, and, and that's really
0: a huge story for the early craft breweries. Is exactly your experience exactly replicated the experience that that all, all the brewers confronted is um, people people found the beer if it had any kind of density, which most of these were ales, and uh, you know even Anchor Steam is a steam beer, so it's a uh, it's a fuller body, uh, fuller bodied beer with more esters. Uh, more yep. more sensation of fullness. It really freaked people out. It, it really you had to be quite courageous to bomb in and drink one of these beers. And uh, yeah, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, steam beer, Anchor's Steam is it's a it's quite nice beer and it does have a lot of flavor. So it you know it's it would be a it would be a big step up for people who were going from uh, a Bud Light or even a Henry's Private Reserve.
1: Yeah, and at the time I was still perhaps not quite. Uh, of age, which meant that I wasn't drinking beer all all the time, uh, and so it's not like I had uh, had a ton of a ton of experience, um, uh, certainly not with with flavorful be- <laughs> flavorful beer. So that was that was my first distinct. And then soon, around that time, uh, this is uh, this is like eighty six, eighty seven, eighty eight in that era. The full sale brewery in Hood River started selling its amber ale, and I remember that as one mm-hmm. of the early. Uh, the early craft beers that I had.
0: Yeah, so this uh, growing up in, in Oregon, or uh, growing up in beer in Oregon, we were in an interesting situation in that the first craft breweries started in uh, 1984, but the first brewery to bottle a beer was full sale, and I think that was late 1987. So the craft beer thing was entirely draft uh for basically the '80s, like nobody was was bottling. That was not a thing. So, while we we could more easily get beer in college from a grocery store, you know, find somebody to buy it, it was it was actually a lot harder to get into a pub. So, we had a little bit more difficulty accessing uh, the the craft beer that was available in the 1980s.
1: Yeah. And in fact, right about then, uh, right as we were arriving at college in Portland, uh, the McMinimans, uh started doing a brew pub. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in fact very, close to, very close to our campus. We were too young uh, to uh, enjoy, but soon uh, we would become of age. And that was also a big part of the sort of early craft beer experience was the McMinimans pubs. And they brewed a, I don't know, a a stout that was sort of a Guinness-like stout, I suppose, that became a big fave, uh, and that was the first, probably you know, after Guinness itself, that was the first uh, craft uh, uh, dark beer I had.
0: Yeah, let's um, what, let's define some terms. There, I think, if you wanted to break down craft beer into into eras, we're clearly in the nineteen eighties are, are are clearly the the founding era, and I think. In most of the country, that lasted well into the nineteen nineties. Uh, I was looking mm-hmm. at um, a list to get prepared for this this podcast. Thrillist or somebody had uh, the oldest breweries in by state. Now that's that's the ones that currently exist. In this thing, was, this article was from twenty fifteen. Right. So some states may well have had earlier breweries that didn't make it, but um, a good deal of them from the nineties, like. Uh, you know, a lot of states didn't get their first breweries until the 1990s. Yes. Um, and, and, and the early mover advantage was pretty strong for uh, the breweries that got started in the 1980s. And we see that by looking, just scanning the list of the biggest breweries in, in any state or the, or, or the country. Uh, a lot of them date back to that early period when they could dominate markets because they were the only ones there.
1: Yeah, the other the other amusing thing. Speaking of that era and, and early movers, so Widmer, as we've talked about, we've had uh, a whole podcast with um, uh, Kurt, which who we, we had Kurt. Yeah. Okay, I was about to say Kurt or Rob, I don't remember which one. We had <laughs> Kurt on the on the podcast. So the Widmer Brewer, Brothers Brewers Brewery started in 1984, and uh, that was another craft beer that was in our sort of uh, our uh, universe at the time. Uh, which was the Hefeweizen. Um, Although I do kind of remember sort of being so cool that Hefe was kind of too light. Like darker, the the darker the 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 better for your your poser <laughs> your poser beer glass.
0: Well, and, and you know, I mean, I, I think it, in some ways uh, craft beer was it, it's, has always been local, but this highlights one thing about Oregon that was that yeah, you know, it's a very particular to Oregon is that uh, by the time we were drinking Hefeweizen, there were already quite a few beers on the market. And you had mentioned uh, Terminator Stout from mm-hmm. Uh Another really important brewery that was actually not from Oregon, but it was brewed by Portland Brewing, was Grant's. And they had an IPA, which they debuted in like 1983 or something. Right. And there were, there were bottles of Grant's IPAs on the grocery store shelves as a regular year-round be- beer Uh, starting in the middle 1980s, maybe like 86, 87, something like that. So when you taste Hefeweizen and you think about what that beer would be like in the 1980s, in most places in America, it's quite full flavored and advanced in in many ways. And yet, uh, even by that time, we had a number of breweries that were already kind of pushing the first envelope in, in terms of strength and flavor profile and Hoppiness and uh, in all these ways, which right. I, I think there's a reason why Portland developed so fast and it, and it's because we had all this i mean now now you have to have a hundred breweries to consider yourself a, a respons- you know a respectable city but um, <laughs> but you know we probably had a dozen by nineteen ninety and and that was crazy
1: yeah, and I didn't realize how weird that was until I then went off to graduate school and other places, and suddenly the selection of beers decreased dramatically. And in fact, a lot of the craft beer that I was getting in other parts, so I lived in Washington, DC for a while, and I lived in Ithaca, New York for quite a few years. So I was, you know, I could find Sierra Nevada. It had started to get far and wide by that point. And of course, Boston Brewing, the Sam Adams lager was everywhere. But there, there was a few, uh, Widmer sometimes traveled rogue, uh, we've talked about this before, uh, sort of focused on getting their stuff far and wide. Um, and so I was able to find rogue beer. Kind of wherever I went, if I looked hard enough. But it was really the juxtaposition of of leaving and then realizing how how different it was in other parts of the world was was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it it it, it really was. Uh, I, I didn't tumble to it even even when we got to Wisconsin, and you know, Wisconsin, of course, has an innate uh, its its own ancient brewing tradition. Yeah, and, and and already had had a few craft breweries, but they were lager breweries, and we hadn't yet grown to appreciate lager. And so, like capital in Madison,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we found wanting. We wanted our we wanted our IPAs. By the time we hit <laughs> Wisconsin, you know, we we already knew what IPAs were, and we were already wanting them. And that's when we started homebrewing because we wanted to make our hoppy beers. Um, so yeah, it is weird how things. You know, we talk about American craft brewing, but it wasn't really American. It was, it was the West, there was the West coast. There were pockets on the East coast There were pockets in the Midwest, but it was, uh, it it really, the tracks didn't line up for a long time.
1: Yeah. So early on, it was a little bit eclectic. So you had like the Boston lager, uh, you had the steam beer from anchor and then uh, a lot of sort of ambers and you had pale ale from Sierra Nevada, which is probably the, you know, the most influential of the beers, but in some way there is a there is a there is a thread. Yes, yeah, suppose you could tie to the early the early successful craft beers is they're all kind of medium bodied, amber colored, fair amount of flavor. Obviously, the flavor profile changed, but that was kind of like like the first iteration of craft beer was this sort of in that kind of um, I don't know wheelhouse, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and we we talked when we uh, talked to John Harris uh, on the occasion of our hundredth uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. He pointed out that um, part of the reason the beers were a little bit simplistic is that the ingredients were simplistic. Yeah, He's, he he was one of those brewers who started at McMenamins, and he was using cluster hops to make some of his hoppy beers. Then, which is <laughs> m- mind-boggling. Now, this is a hop that dates back to the 19th century, and right. um, you know, it's not a, it's not a refined hop at all. It, it, it's a rough, weird, old, obsolete hop. It's still grown, but it's a weird hop. Specialty malts were very hard to come by. There were no European malts, Um, you know. I mean, there were some specialty malts, but there's not very many. Mm -hmm. There were no European malts, right? Uh, So, so the beer really reflected the availability of uh, of of all of that, right? And 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 not not well. I mean, I think one of the things that I would impress upon people who didn't live through this time is that there was, uh, you know, we talk. I hear people now talk about how we don't talk about bad beer enough. Uh, and we should really call out bad brewers, but you don 't know bad beer. I mean there was a yeah, lot of really bad beer like you would you would judge a brewery if you walked in if it had minimal uh, off flavors in the beers or you know if, yeah. if if there were a few clean beers and then there there were some breweries that were just putting out gasoline. it was terrible, like undrinkable almost poisonous stuff. And they were commercial breweries and it was, it was, <laughs> it was a wild time,
1: Yeah, it's, but nobody knew that was part of it. Nobody knew what beer is supposed to taste. like. It's really true. And that was almost part of being a craft beer drinker in the, I don't know, early nineties maybe is that you'd go and you'd expect that, you know, this, I don't know, brew pub, let's say is offering five beers and maybe a couple of them would be good. And a couple of them probably be pretty bad. And one would be okay. I mean, it's just that, that was yeah. kind of, that was kind of the expectation. And the key totally. was to find let's, let's find <laughs> that one or two really good beers. Like, and that was okay. I mean, it was not, uh, you know, it was sort of considered part of the part of the deal, um, right? And now, I mean, the the quali- that sort of the overall quality is just astounding to me. And, and I think I think we probably end up talking about this a lot uh, on the podcast, and that's just because of this early experience where quality was not good at uh, the beginning uh, consistent quality was almost unheard of. <laughs> and, totally. and people were kind of just experimenting with beer and sometimes it would be the different ingredients and the different process they used. And a lot of times it would just be the weird off flavors that sort of came in <laughs> and, and the infections they, they managed and things like that. Uh, and it was just all part of being a craft beer drinker at the time. You just sort of forgave a lot of these, um, uh, uh, uh mistakes and moved on. And now, I mean, uh, you know, one bad beer, you put it on tap and it's unforgivable, right? I mean, we all know better now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. Uh, you, you know, when, uh, when, when there are rumors that somebody's got diacetyl in their beer, uh, that, that, uh, chemical compound that tastes buttery or like butterscotch, uh, it's, it can be a big, a big deal. You know, people get really anxious about that, And, you know, they're worried that it will do permanent damage to the brewery's reputation. And my God, 75% of the beer had diacetyl (laughs) in 1988. You know, it was was like considered a flavor that you should have. You should have diacetyl. Um, And and that was the case in New England, you know, well, probably well after the, the new century that diacetyl was super common and super, you know, Everybody was totally cool with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned how sort of I had to learn what craft beer was when I first had my first anchor steam and I pretended to like it, but didn't actually. That's the other part. You know, consumers have become so much more sophisticated. They now know what a a good beer and a bad beer is. They know what a beer with problems (laughs) is for the most part. And so you can't get away with it. That's the other end. You know, not only are they just better anyway and wouldn't put it out, but uh, customers aren't going to stand for it anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that actually led to the first great shakeout in the mid 1990s. Things got so bad. And by that time there was a lot more of it going into package and people were just tired of buying beer that was totally gross, you know, spending, uh, you know, $8 on a six pack in the, we're talking the mid 1990s was a lot of money then. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you buy your fruit IP or your fruit uh, wheat ale and take it home. And it's, uh, you know you pour it out and it's all chunky and gross looking it has no head you know it tastes gross the fruit flavor is sweet and nasty or you know it foams out of your bottle before you can even get it in the glass and they were just tired of that and and they started moving away from craft beer because it had, gotten, it had gotten so bad
1: yeah and your example is not incidental by the way that was like one of the big popular things at the time was fruit wheat beers yeah <laughs> they're, they're sort of that was the kind of the push out to, to try to attract more customers. There was this uh, sweeter, fruitier kind of beers rather than, um, and that also might have been a, a function of still not a great selection of ingredients. One thing. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to circle back to the um, to the Josh Knoll interview from last week and his book because one of the things that really stood out when I was reading his book was how early on, so in the 1980s, and then um, probably spilling over a bit into the early 90s, this first wave of craft beer was kind of two types. Um, He talks about Goose Island, which is one type, which is kind of a business person getting into this new market that had potential. And the fact that it was beer was sort of not 100% incidental, but it was a bit incidental. And then you had the, the home brewers, who had started to learn and learn about beer and start getting pretty good at brewing it, think that, Hey, I could make a business out of this. And so I think, mm-hmm. so that early, that, that first wave, I think was these two types of, of, uh, of breweries, the home brewer gone pro. And some people were exceptional at making that pivot to being a business Uh, person like Ken Grossman, I think, at uh, Sierra Nevada, for example. Uh, And then there's this other. So Goose Island was sort of more business first, but there's also these contract brewers. So Boston Brewing and Brooklyn Brewing. And then Pete's Wicked had this amazing run where it was a massive uh, nationwide uh, sort of success story. And it flamed out. I'm so with you on
0: Pete's. I'm glad you brought Pete's up. We need... Anybody who talks about American craft brewing, especially in that first era, must contend with Pete's Wicked Ale. Mm -hmm. It's sort of been written out of the history books because we want to streamline the narrative so that it goes from Sierra Nevada to Treehouse in a kind of straight line. Right. Uh, But there was no straight line. (laughs) It It was a squiggly line. And Pete's Pete's Wicked came out, this brown ale. Can you imagine? It, <laughs> I know. Was at one, it was at one point the second best-selling beer in America, and it was a brown ale.
1: Yeah. It was amazing. But that's what I was saying. I think that sort of that original urtext er of what a craft beer was is that it was brown, you know, it was medium-bodied, and it had some kinds of flavors. You know, maybe it was more like a Sierra Nevada, and it was kind of Cascade hops dominant, and maybe it was uh, – you know, a Full sale Amber, and I couldn't even tell you what that was, but I think it was more malt forward. And But here's my, here's my personal, since we're talking about personal anecdotes, here's my personal anecdote with Pete's Wicked. When I finished school and I knew that i probably head on to grad school and was just goofing off, I took a job as a UPS driver for a while. And I was- yeah. doing- uh,
0: this is one of your proudest jobs, much in, in the way that after graduate school, I was a cab driver for a year, and that was one of my proudest jobs. These are like our great uh, man-of-the-people jobs. A,
1: well, it was, an amazingly, it was an amazingly impactful job. I learned so much about the world by being a UPS driver, even though it was for less than a year. Yeah, But I was doing this in California, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in fact, in Palo Alto, and Pete's Wicked was from Palo Alto. And I used to deliver to Pete's Wicked Ale. And the crazy thing about it was, I I had been
0: <laughs> based in Palo Alto. Like I in been,
1: yeah, I had been in Portland, where you know there was real like Widmer's brought, built their brewery, Bridgeport built a brewery. Uh, the McMinimans had a series of brew pubs. Like I understood what craft beer was; it was people brewing beer on their own. Uh, and so you, yeah, the Pete's Wicked office was a second floor office in a little low rise office building in downtown Palo Alto. And it looked to me, from what I could tell, an operation of about ten people, uh, and they had like a Pete's Wicked the logo at the front desk when you came there, and that's where I dropped the package. And there was almost nothing else; it was just a shell. It was a logo. Uh, it was a you know a business that had somebody make a product for them, kind of like you would I don't know make sneakers in China and then sell them here. And and, and it was just a, it was just a sales operation. It was a it was an amazingly different. Version of craft beer than I had ever experienced before. Yeah, and I was really confused. By the way, I didn't realize they were just a contract brewer. Like I kept asking myself, "Gee, I where the brewery is around here? I don't see it." <laughs> Did you ask them that? No, 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 no. I was too too ashamed, or too just too just <laughs> bewildered by it. like, wait, this is Pete's Wicked. I kind of figured this must be like one little sort of offshoot office. Like I didn't realize.
0: Right. Right. Like this is where the office is, but the brewery's around back. Yeah. Somewhere. The brewery
1: is just like, yeah, a few blocks away or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this, yeah. and I've told this story a couple of times. I'll just tell it again, which is, you know, I was around when um, some friends of mine were starting Ithaca Brewing Company and it was, it was a business first. It was serious The the guy who started was serious about wanting to build his own business, but um, he wasn't a brewer himself. And so at first he got his beer contract brewed in Chicago. In fact, they even developed the original, you know, with his input. But they developed the original recipes, and it wasn't until he got it off the ground and sort of got it got it going that he was able to build his own brewery and hire really good brewers and and so on and so forth. So it was a very interesting to see the uh, those two different approaches because in Oregon, it was definitely dominated by the kind of homebrewer gone pro model. Right.
0: Yeah. Totally.
1: All right. The cat of the pod wants in, so hang on.
0: Oh, for God's sakes! All right, Will, we're going to cut this out.
1: Oh, you can't cut out the cat, boy. I think the dog, I think the dog of the pod made an entrance late earlier because he was barking at the UPS driver. So,
0: all right, Will, maybe leave it in. Maybe people will love us giving notes to our producer. In the podcast, I don't know. Uh, it it's very on brand. Meta, demos. meta, yeah. <laughs> I will leave that section in, as well as adding this extra meta, meta layer.
1: All right. So what you know, what I'm going to do? I'm going to open my beer now. <laughs>
0: I'm ready to have my second beer. That's that's
1: how I roll, babies.
0: All right, uh, because I want to. And, and and my my second beer will actually lead into a conversation I want to have about uh, uh, what happened to those early breweries.
1: okay well let's do that one first and then what's what's your beer because my beer is actually a belgian beer it's orval uh oh yeah because i'm not as prepared for this podcast as you were but i did want to talk about i did want to talk about the belgian influence because there was a whole period at which like every craft brewer was going crazy about belgian beer
0: yeah i mean that was a thing right we uh early in this this era nobody knew nobody could see 2020 and see that hazy ipas I, ipas of all kinds but especially hazy ipas would be the dominant style of characterizing american brewing and so they were making weird stuff they were making amber ales and bar brown ales and amber loggers and you know uh what one brewery was making a pay a hot forward pale, pale ale uh and doing pretty well with it but um but they were all over the place
1: yeah so what do you was-
0: actually Okay. I'm pouring out uh, one of those Amber Ales.
1: From? Can you hear that? Yes, I can. Very good. Thank you. Uh,
0: it is uh, one of the last bottles of McTarnahan's Ale from Portland Brewing. Ah. A now defunct brewery that, yes. that uh, brewed, its, brewed its last beers on uh, uh, April, uh, sorry, February 5th. So when I saw this on the shelf, there were two bottles, two little lone bottles sitting there. I, <laughs> I grabbed them fast and thought, oh man, I better have myself some Max." I mean, um, this
1: really is a recipe that, I mean, maybe it, they've probably tinkered with it, but goes back to, gosh, how, when do you think 1986 or something?
0: Well, it's funny. I was, when the brewery announced that it was closing up, I, I I was researching what they were doing, and it was actually not their first... It was not in their first round of stuff. It was actually, like dates to, like, 1990 or oh,
1: something.
0: Okay. Uh, their first beer was called Portland Ale, and it was, like, a cream ale or a... I don't know what it was. Mm. And they were rolling with that for a while. But anyway, uh, this is just an amber ale. Uh, regionally, amber Ales were quite popular. Both this one and Full Sail's amber had one of those. You, you could... If you walked into a, any... Uh, pub in uh, Portland, Oregon, or most most cities in Oregon, in 1990, let's say, you would find one handle of Hefeweizen, one handle of Blackbutt Porter, mm-hmm. one handle with an amber ale, and then probably the fourth handle was the gimme, like you know the the dealer's choice, the random thing that you could you could hope to have. Right. Uh, but an amber ale would have been one of the four taps, on, you know, on a four handle pub which were pretty common back then yeah and 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 max and mctarnahan portland's mctarnahans and uh full sail were you know were fighting it out i think max probably had more handles in portland and full sail had more handles outside of portland
1: by the way going all the way back just because i'm not sure did you say i I said that my first like my first ever real craft beer was a was a uh anchor steam what about you (laughs) um I think I can't tell you. My
0: first ever craft beer was a Minimus. Okay. And uh, the first Minimus that I remember. <laughs> so I don't know if this was actually the first one, but it was the first one, and it was a it, it was a beer that completely blew my mind and changed changed what I understood beer to be. Was when I had uh, the Terminator Stout. Yeah. Which at the time was a was a bigger beer than it is now. I think it was like a. Six and a half, seven percent beer. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a huge, huge for, you know, for the time. Nobody, we didn't
1: know beer could go that high. Or go that, Uh, for me. Well, I guess I knew Guinness, but yeah. But Guinness was kind of a light. Uh, Yeah, I kind of knew Guinness, but
0: I kind of didn't know Guinness. I mean, this was just, (laughs) this was off the grid for me. I could not believe beer could be like that.
1: By the way, you, you might not remember, but you introduced me to that beer.
0: I don't remember. And then
1: I and that was how I defined cool as drinking beer. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you got to have the big dark. Like that's 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 cool.
0: <laughs> I I I'm not in any way surprised that you look to me to define cool, as I have always been the trendsetter.
1: I know I was a misguided youth. That's true. Calling <laughs> around false prophets everywhere. <laughs> uh, indeed. All right, so let's just go through the big shakeout then. Yeah, cuz there
0: was a big shakeout and and I looked back at all to see how many of these breweries were still around cuz I just assume, you know, a lot of these these 1980s breweries are still around, right? Like they were great. They they survived. They were the big the big national leaders. No. Like Portland
1: Brewing, they they didn't survive and the first the first big challenge they had was the shakeout. It's amazing to think about how ubiquitous Pete's Wicked Ale was yeah. and then it just Went almost as quickly as it came. I suppose part of that is because they had no real capital investment, and so it was just a very simple business proposition: was we'll keep pumping it as long as there's real profits, and as soon as there aren't, and we just get out of the game. Like uh, uh, you don't you don't try to keep squeezing out something out of your your capital investment if you don't have one, right? Uh, uh, but uh, what I mean what do you what do you to what do you attribute? The, the big shakeout is it was it the the uneven quality and or what
0: yeah I think it was to tell my my story uh, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell my beer slash writing story in nineteen I'm gonna say ninety seven but but it, it might have been ninety six it might have been ninety eight at some point I'm gonna go, go back and, and figure this out but in in that three year span uh, the writer for our alt weekly uh, William Abernathy left. Portland to go to the Bay Area to be a tech writer mm-hmm. and make a lot of money. And before he did that, he was writing about beer for a Week. Uh, and he was a gonzo journalist and he wrote an incredibly engaging column every other week, uh, which alternated with a wine column. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he retired or left, he retired, he was like 28. When he left that, left open this, this, Incredibly coveted job to be the beer writer for Willamette Week and Everybody tried to apply for that job and I was like, ooh, I want to be a beer writer I left graduate school to come back to Portland to work on my novel and I've written uh, a poetry book while I was driving cab and maybe I'll write about beer that could be cool and so uh, By chance our friend Joe knew this guy who used to work at a little brewery called Star in Portland Mm-hmm. And it had just gone belly up. And he said, hey, why don't you talk to – oh, God. I know, now, of course, I'm drawing a total blank on his name. Speaking of being of a certain yeah, age. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it will come to me before the end of this podcast. But uh, anyway, we met, and he told me the story of Star. Anyway, I ended up writing the story uh, and sending that in as my application, and I got the job, and and the rest is history. In a way, it was incredibly in, uh, prescient uh, article to write because my whole period of three years writing for Lamb Week was writing about the shakeout that would follow. Right. And Star was a brewery that grew too fast and they were pushing beer out. Uh, he said at one point the beer was leaving the brewery within five days. <laughs> they were, they were one of the first breweries to put it in 22 ounce bottles. And he said, you could sit there in the warehouse and just hear explosions happen. but <laughs> <laughs> Bottles were just exploding in the warehouse. Oh, brother! And he described this kind of like uh, last days of star brewing and all the mistakes. It was a very interesting story, and that was the thing that I sent in. and And I think that was what was happening. There was this land rush by people who thought that beer was a vehicle to get rich, didn't care about beer, didn't understand it very well, and were flooding the market with stuff that would literally explode in you. You know, could potentially explode in your hand and that was not good for beer (laughs) that was not good for an industry yeah i really
1: i was going to say i wonder how much like the the pete's wicked because then there was i mean they kind of became dominant for a little while maybe it was just because they were getting it brewed by real professional brewers who knew how to brew at scale and who could deliver a consistent product at least
0: yeah you know in a weird way those early uh, contract brewers who would just go to existing breweries Mm -hmm. and say here here's a beer they either had a recipe or they had an idea and, you know, they worked with those breweries to, to make what would be a, a, an acceptable commercial brew, beer. Yeah. And, that, was, that was in some ways a much better plan. Yeah. And, and
1: and and am I right in that there were a lot of these um, sort of former formerly fairly big regional brewers? I'm thinking like of the, I don't know what, like a Schaefer beers and, you know, uh, that had fairly sizable breweries but were being killed by Anheuser, by Bud and Miller and Coors
0: hundred um, percent. So there's yeah, this, capacity,
1: this capacity and talent at these big brewers that you could pretty easily go and get it contract brewed. That's right. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's totally right. I mean, uh, at one point, uh, Boston beer was being brewed. Part of Boston beer was being brewed at uh, the Henry Weinhardt's plant.
1: Right, 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 right. Henry Wine is another one. Yeah, Henry Weinhardt, yeah. by the way, that was another local beer that was around. I mean, we were undergrads. We had plenty of hams, Rainier, Olympia, Henry Weinhardt's. Blitz, although Blitz didn't really, uh, for some reason, I don't know when Blitz went away, but Weinhardt's outlasted Blitz.
0: It did. Yeah. I think once the brewery closed down, um, people were like, why am I drinking this weird cheap beer? Uh, when, 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 when the Blitz Weinhardt brewery was downtown, it it was one thing, but when it was being, when Blitz was being made in uh, Milwaukee, it probably didn't make much sense.
1: (laughs) Okay. So I want to kind of pivot to my next kind of big, uh, big moment in craft beer and this coincides with the big rise of the big ipas um which were kind of almost then the, the the natural evolution i think one because new hops and better hops were available because yeah. you had a uh, you had a now a fairly sizable group of craft beer drinkers who are used to big flavorful beers and could handle an even bigger more flavorful beer uh uh, and what was, there was going to be a third reason, but I can't remember what it was. Um uh, But anyway, that was kind of where it was almost a new, a new awakening. Like for someone like me, it was like, suddenly you just had these incredibly hop infused beers and they were remarkable to me. I was like, wow, this is like, craft beer was good because it was different than macro and it was more flavorful and stuff. But, you know, there's only so f- much love i can give an amber ale i guess if that makes sense and then you've got these great hops and they've got they're full of flavor and even just like an old cascade hop but when done right it's amazing right absolutely although i have to say uh as i am reminded every time i drink with torn hands
0: this is an amazing esb it's an esb and it's just like spot on it's an esb with cascade hops it's just it's just spectacular Uh, beer. it's really a good beer
1: now you're making you're Um, making me sad wistful yeah
0: yeah it's a great beer (laughs) (laughs) uh it's got it's got a fair amount of hops too Mm -hmm. um so it's uh but it's it's got a very english pedigree the malts are very english uh in presentation which is a good character that's a
1: good point we haven't really touched on but early on it was all sort of english influenced well not all but largely influenced english influence and there was a lot of reproductions of english styles early on that's right
0: and I think that's when 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 you invoke the IPA era, that's when America began finding its own voice. That's when they were making beers that were not made elsewhere.
1: Exactly to the detriment of the old British styles, which I lament now, of course. But right. uh, but I did love the IPAs. But the first wave of IPAs started to become this bitterness arms race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they. Uh, so I'll just I'll just mention by the way, there are some of my big faves uh, back uh, in the day, actually I'll go all the way back and say, well, the Bridgeport IPA was just stunning because it was a more British version of an IPA. Uh, but then, uh, like racer five was one I really light boundary Bay made a great IPA, which was fantastic. Ninkazi came along with its, uh, um, Uh, Total Dom. Total Dom, thanks. I was about to say terminator. I was like, no, no, that's not it. Uh, (laughs) So there was these big uh, big IPAs, hop-infused, like amazingly favorable aromatic beers that were uh, great. Uh, And then they kind of went, it kind of got a little crazy about how bitter you'd make it. And then, you know, you drink half a beer and you couldn't taste the rest because (laughs) your tongue would have melted. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. I date that. So there, there were kind of two things happening. There, there in the, on the business side, breweries didn't. Uh, in like 1998, there were probably, uh, you know, twelve hundred and fifty breweries in the United States, and in 2008, there were like twelve hundred and fifty breweries in the United States. It just went flat. Um, they sold a bit more beer, but all those breweries that survived uh, had to, you know. They they had to lock it down. I look at that period as an incredibly refreshing period where quality came on. Mm. It didn't really affect sales at all. Yeah. But the breweries that survived were the ones that dialed in process. They understood how to make they, – they became production breweries. They understand how to make beer consistently yeah. and, and slowly win back those customers. They'd run away with exploding bottles in the, in the mid-90s. Yeah. And at the same time – oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say I remember having a conversation ages and ages and ages ago, long before the podcast, I believe, when we – chatted with Jamie Floyd of Ninkazi, which was a production brewery in Eugene that grew very quickly. And at the beginning, they were much more of a home brewer gone pro operation. And he was talking about how it became very clear that they needed a quality assurance, quality control process right away. And I think they even built their own little lab and stuff. And and so it was this real focus on quality and consistency that started uh, becoming prominent in craft beer, which which was a good thing. (laughs)
0: That it, it it was a critical uh, change, and I you know I've talked to other brewers who say that we're still not there, but okay. but you know uh, it it sure. was it there was some bad beer. The other trend that was happening at the same time is the development of IPAs, and I think I, I would say that you you mentioned Ninkasi. I think of Ninkasi's debut as the moment we entered the modern craft, the modern IPA era. So those early Ninkasi beers were quite. He- it tilted quite heavily to bitterness, but what really struck me about them, and what blew my mind, was how aromatic they were. Yeah. Yeah. they were very bitter, but they were insanely aromatic. And it was the first time I could hold a beer uh, a foot away from my nose, and it was just, you know, it was it was filling the room with with these these hop aromatics, in a way that I'd never encountered. I mean, even even uh, the Bridgeports, which was you quite a, a heavily. Uh, aromatic beer. It wasn't It wasn't on steroids like the new ones. No. And, and Minkasi really marked that moment. So I think we talked earlier about how uh, uh, Bailey's Taproom debuted in 2007. So that that 2006, 2007, 2008, kind of like right around in there, the brewers that were founded then were headed by brewers who had, had been weaned on hoppy beers but wanted to take it to a level that was more sophisticated uh, and had more dimension, was getting more out of those hops. And from that point until now is kind of the modern era, I think, where you, that whole era was defined by hops.
1: Yeah. And I would also just say on the sort of production side, I think by that point, there had been enough, there was enough collective experience in the industry. There was also enough knowledge among consumers that a whole, as you mentioned, a whole new era of sort of quality and consistency arose uh, there was a there was smart enough and talented enough brewers and staff. there was uh, drinkers who were going to cer- seek out quality and consistency and so I think that really uh, you know the other side of that modern era as you mentioned is really just this sort of uh, more professional brewers and putting out a more professional product if if you'll forgive my terms
0: I think that's exactly right and you know uh, you you saw what what started to be a professionalization of the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Better standards with uh, draft lines, better standards with ingredients, better standards with brew house construction, engineering. Um, and then, of course, the brewers themselves, many now have degrees. There's a lot of places you can go get a degree. You can get a short degree in a couple of weeks, you know. Uh, you can get lo- longer ones in a, in a few months. So it, it's, it's possible to get a good grounding in the way to operate a brew, brew house. You know, and, and kind of understand the science and, and all of that behind it. You're, you know, y- if you do one of those courses, you're not going to be ready to, um, you know, challenge uh, Vinny Salurzo for, for, <laughs> for primacy in terms of, of competence in making great beer. But, you, you know, you're, you're now a professional. You can go in and, and make a beer in a way that those guys in the 1980s, they had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they, they really they were trying to figure it out.
1: Yeah, they had no idea of the processes going on in there, in their fermentation yeah. tanks. Uh, yeah, I, we're not going to have time. we we got to wrap this up, so we don't gonna have time for it too much. But I was going to use my little Orval here, which, as always, is fabulous, uh, to just talk about how sort of at that same time, I think the competence was there, and the interest in more complex beers were there, and breweries really started to... To explore these, drinkers were more interested interested in these things. So, you not only had a lot of sort of explosion in, in Belgian beers in the U.S., but you also had uh, places like Omagang and and and, and uh, craft brewers sort of getting into those kinds of styles and really branching out, and sort of specialty companies themselves. So, like Omagang, sort of ones that that uh, created new identities and new pathways into craft beer.
0: You're right, and it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly important. Point because another thing that happened uh, at that moment when we started really getting into hops is we started to look much more inwardly and less outwardly. And the great virtue of that first era, which was at least 20 years, um, 20, 25 years, mm-hmm. was that the United States, everybody in the United States was trying to figure out what beer was and they were looking mm-hmm. outward. You know, they were looking at all the great breweries in Belgium, all the great breweries in England and Germany—they didn't really look to Czech yet. Uh, we're finally—they're finally figuring out what <laughs> Czech breweries are like. Um, but they were really curious about the techniques, the ingredients, and the styles that were made elsewhere. And I think if there's anything that I lament about the modern era—and and there's not much, honestly. Uh, but if there's anything that I lament, it's that we are maybe more as drinkers even than as brewers, not interested in the beers that are made in Europe mm-hmm. or the styles that are made in Europe. But we've become very insular in that way, which which I totally get. It's exactly, you know, the the, the Germans are very insular too. And the reason they have such great beer culture is because they're so insular. Um, so I get it. That's That's actually not a terrible thing. But from the perspective of a beer drinker, being able to walk into a, a pub and uh, or a brewery and 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 have them talk about some obscure style that they were trying, which may not be obscure to us now, but um, at the time it's like, oh, what a wit beer! Ooh, that's exotic. Yeah, those were fun times. We were we were really exposing ourselves to a world uh, that was new and exciting to us. And and there's something about looking out. And having your 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 experience explode wide open—that's really, really charming. And I think when old guys like us speak romantically about the old days, I think partly we're seeing that element of of what the industry was like then, and it, it was less fussy and less insular.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that sort of to 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 wrap it up, just say like in in Portland now, we're kind of in this amazing golden era where there's places I know I can go, and they'll have. A pretty broad list of beers. They'll encompass lots of different styles and types. The quality of most or all of them will be pretty exceptional. And, uh, you know, it's like being in a Disneyland for a craft beer drinker. It's amazing. You can just uh, find all kinds of amazing beer in all kinds of styles. And the talent is there that, you know, even a place that's like particularly good at lagers can still brew a great IPA. Um, you know, a nice sour beer or something so it's um it's great
0: yeah it it is great uh uh we, the <laughs> yeah, you could go out into any city in America right now uh and find twenty beers you could find your favorite twenty beers uh in the marketplace right now. And they're almost certainly better than the, the 20 best beers that were brewed in America in 1990.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a, <laughs> I know. If there's one message to take home, remember craft beer used to suck.
0: Yeah, it um, was. It, we were we were learning our craft. We it was very yeah. rudimentary. We were journeyman maker, craft beer makers then. Or beer makers. It's true.
1: Even the very best craft beers of the early days would not even. Yeah, they wouldn't hold up very well at all. So right. All right. Well, we should probably wrap this up. So uh, thank you, Jeff, for going down memory lane with me. This was my suggestion. So uh, if you don't like it, blame me. Don't blame Jeff.
0: <laughs> oh, we take we take full blame, both in for a penny, and for a pound.
1: All right. So let's turn to the mailbag, because once again, thank you, uh, dear listeners, for um, sending us your questions and comments. Uh, and we have um, a few for you today.
0: That's so, right. We, we, we have some nice responses to our uh, Maris the Otter
1: Debut. Yeah, which we, which we haven't mentioned, and we didn't mention the last podcast, so we better do it here. So we now have a new logo, a new, a new mascot, uh, uh, Maris the Otter. Now, uh, uh, Tobias Hahn, our good friend, uh the brewer at Rosenstadt, uh, local uh, Portland brewer, responded via Twitter uh, that before, <laughs> before we determined that Maris the Otter was uh, uh, a girl... Uh, he suggested Maris Dare Otter, <laughs> which, by the way, the, the gendered gender noun the noun is otter, right? Wouldn't it be even if it was a female? Would it still be a Maris Dare Otter? Or would it be a Maris D Otter? I don't know.
0: I think well, they're both they're both female, right? Like because then the otter becomes a female. Oh yeah, you're right. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Does the gender does the gender go on the noun or the thing? See, this is what happens when you grow up in a in a language that doesn't have gendered nouns. You get all. Like the rest of the world doesn't make sense. That's <laughs> true. It's true. The problem is I've studied all these Romans. Like I should know these. In fact, I didn't study German in high school. So,
0: Nevertheless, Maris der Otter is really funny. Uh, it is. It is really funny. <laughs> but I think we want, not- instead of the Maris Otter or Maris Otter, I think we are sh- kind of shifting as, as, the, as the, the crowd also suggested. I think the majority were uh, tilting towards Maris the Otter.
1: Yeah. Uh, you can you can call maris whatever you like but it, but, it
0: probably maris the otter also probably but she's ours she that 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 framing maris the otter probably keeps us slightly closer to the uh, angels in terms of getting in legal trouble so let's do
1: that <laughs> yeah, that's true <laughs> oh come on uh, the the Brits aren't like that by the way the Brits probably wouldn't be all that happy with maris their otter as, they're, as they're <laughs> <true>. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Uh, <laughs> all right, oh God, uh, you should go over the next one.
0: All right, um, uh, Zach, who is at here in our, our here in Portland at the Portland U Brew, uh, sent us uni-
1: Unicorn Brewing too,
0: and Unicorn Brewing uh, sent us a uh, kind of uh, longer piece where he is reflecting on a thing that Jordan said regarding the rule uh, uh, he suggested of having a short name. Uh, or easy-to-pronounce name in, for beer, uh, beers and breweries, uh, right. partly because they'll fit on labels. And he writes, I immediately mean, you thought of John Harris's choice of ecliptic as the name of his brewery, I remember being worried about the obscure to non-astronomers' word being an obstacle to success. Clearly, that's not the case. It's true. Ecliptic has totally survived that. And, and you know, I'm sure that there are... I'm sure if we had asked uh, Jordan okay, what is your general rule? Now, what's the exception? (laughs) You would have said, oh, yeah, well, it's great to violate these if you know the rule.
1: Um, By the way, speaking of our 100th episode with John Harris, he will tell you about his choice of ecliptic.
0: That's right, and I think it's really worked out for them as a brand identity.
1: Um, Yeah, and it wasn't just because he was some crazy, as you would expect, uh, 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 astronomy lover. Uh, He actually thought after a while that it had a little, uh, it was short and... Uh, kind of stood out, and then led to a whole sort of series of packaging you could do that was all based on astronomy names. So anyway, that's right. Go ahead, continue. <laughs> uh, the other was
0: Gigantic's. The cat ate my stash and pissed on the Christmas tree IPA. <laughs> uh, uh, which which for anybody who loves IPAs, they will immediately recognize all those flavor components that come from hops, which is a beautiful kind of evocation of what the beer is going to taste like. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's really enjoyable to see people buck conventional wisdom and be successful at it.
1: Agreed. Yeah. Well, that's the whole great thing about Gigantic uh, is that the whole company is basically based on doing what they want to do. That's right. So, that's awesome. Uh, okay. Also, via Twitter, we have Brett Jones from my hometown, Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, sort of hometown, close enough. I'm hoping uh, T
0: shirts. One of my it.
1: hometowns. Yeah. <laughs> one of my hometowns. But I, I still consider my formative years to have been in Madison, Wisconsin. So totally. Uh, yeah. I'm hoping T shirts and glassware are forthcoming. Come on, Jeff. You're supposed to be our merchandise maven. Let's get and, on that.
0: And Jason Cozies. And Jason in Portland adds, now to get, now to get onto that merch, a nice, like a nice pint glass. So, so the, the call is out, and I am on the case. Uh, yeah.
1: You know what you got to do? We, we got to get the beaver pint glass with a Maris Otter on the front, if you I, remember, all the way back to the beaver pint glass.
0: A beaver pint? No, I don't remember. What are you talking about?
1: So I, <laughs> when you were in the Honest Pint Project, worrying about people getting an honest pint, yes. uh, I was all into marked glassware, like the Brits do.
0: Oh, uh, but then I,
1: to, but then I came up with my own little crown pint you instead of a, a beaver pint, pint. a little beaver on it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, that all makes sense to me. Uh, yeah, okay. that's a deep, that's a deep cut. I've kind of forgotten that. Uh, yeah, so we're we're gonna do it. Um, I think uh, there there are complex and easy ways to do this, and I think we're just gonna probably do it an easy way, a, a cafe press style place. Although I am going to investigate one that has high quality merchandise, and I will design and purchase those to make sure they are high quality and then let you know where those will be available. And it is underway. And we want to thank, uh, Jordan Wilson at Jordan Wilson designs again, uh, for making the, uh, high quality raster, um, uh, versions of those, uh, images available so we can do that for you. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, Uh, he's, he's been so fantastic and I'm going to have to buy him all the t-shirts we're going to produce and all the hats. And in addition to my books and like,
1: we're going to owe him for a long time. (laughs) Uh, anyway, shout out to Brett for, uh, checking in go badgers, uh, go eat abroad at state street brats for us.
0: Yeah. I hope they're still there.
1: Oh God, that would be, no, that, that would never happen. COVID man. <laughs> Dotty Dumplings Dowry. All right, I better stop Mickey's Dairy Bar. Okay, uh, a few words going out. These are the institutions that cannot ever die. Uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeerVanablog.com or on Twitter at BeerVanapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Birvana. And Patrick tweets at Biernomics. All right, I I I'm gonna cheers you with my Orval. Uh, that's a nice beer.
0: You didn't even talk about that, but everyone knows what Orval is, so.
1: Yeah, and if you don't, you should go find some Orval and have it. It's it's you, your beer education's not complete.
0: It's a it's a top five, ten, hundred beer. I don't 10. know.
1: Yeah, something. It's, it's at top. least top ten, top ten world beer. Okay. Totally. All right, Jeff. Cheers. Cheers, Patrick.